Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 121, The Birth of a Nation in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss one of the most controversial movies ever made. 104 years ago this month, on February 8, 1915, a film premiered that almost instantly became the greatest blockbuster of the silent movie era. It featured innovative new filmmaking techniques like close-up shots of an actor's face and fade-outs when a shot slowly dissolved into darkness. It had a revolutionary score, blending original musical compositions with works from the classical canon like Ride of the Valkyries and traditional heartland music like Maryland, My Maryland and Dixie. It was anchored by thrilling action scenes shot on a never-before-seen scale with thousands of actors and extras, hundreds of horses, and battlefield effects like real cannons. The film was Birth of a Nation, which glorified the Ku Klux Klan as the noble, heroic saviors of white America from the villainous clutches of evil black men bent on rape and destruction. Upon the film's 50th anniversary in 1965, NAACP President Roy Wilkins proclaimed, Since the film appeared 50 years ago, Negroes have made many a breakthrough. But all the Duke Ellingtons, Marion Andersons, Iris Eldridges, Jackie Robinsons, Burt Williamses, Fritz Pollards, the Olympic heroes, the heroes of two world wars, the scientists, scholars, technicians, political figures, Poets, playwrights, entertainers, and diplomats have not succeeded in erasing the vicious image etched by the Griffith racial epic. When the film debuted in Boston in April of 1915, audience reaction was split along racial lines, with white Bostonians flocking to see the movie in record numbers, while black Bostonians organized protests and boycotts, with leaders like William Monroe Trotter attempting to have it banned in Boston. But before we talk about how Boston wrestled with Birth of a Nation, we want to give a shout out to listener Derek. Over the past few weeks, you've heard us promote our Patreon campaign. We love researching and writing a new podcast episode each week, and we think we're getting better at it over time. One of the best things about podcasts is that they're free to consume. Unfortunately, they're not free to produce. By supporting us on Patreon with as little as $2 per month, you can help us offset the cost of web hosting and security, the service that hosts our podcast feed, and audio processing tools that we pay for monthly. We have levels of support named after Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams, just some of our favorite Bostonians, with thank you gifts ranging from a sticker to a private walking tour with us as your guides. Derek is our first Lewis Hayden supporter, which means that he gets thanked on the show. Thanks for your support, Derek. And thanks to our anonymous Amelia Earhart supporters as well. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash hubhistory or clicking on the support us link at hubhistory.com. So with that, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. By the time I sat down to choose a Boston Book Club pick, an upcoming event, I realized that the script for this episode was running a little bit longer than we usually like. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. This week, I'm combining the book and event by picking an author talk for an exciting new book. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Household Gods, The Religious Life of the Adams Family by Sarah Giorgini. Dr. Giorgini is the series editor working on the Adams Family Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society. 
I may enjoy dabbling in the Adams diaries and letters, but she lives and breathes this stuff. She's also a frequent contributor to Smithsonian Magazine and the Society for U.S. Intellectual History's blog. And I know her as a delightfully thoughtful and informative voice on Twitter as at Sarah Giorgini, which is spelled without an H. Household Gods is her first book, and if I'm being honest, I haven't read it yet. It came out less than two weeks before this recording, and our to-be-read pile is taller than some of our shorter friends at this point. But as an Adams fan, I am excited to read it soon. It follows the evolution of religious belief and unbelief among nine generations of the Adams family across over three centuries. From Henry Adams, the first of the family to set foot in Puritan Massachusetts in the 1630s, to a 20th century skeptic also named Henry Adams who counted the original Henry as his fifth great-grandfather. Along the way, there's a loving focus on our two presidential Adamses and their immediate families. You can find out more from a talk by Dr. Sarah Giorgini at the Massachusetts Historical Society at 6 p.m. on March 6th. She'll talk about her research into the Adams family and their views on religion. As the event description states, the family ultimately developed a cosmopolitan Christianity that blended discovery and criticism, faith and doubt. Sarah Giorgini demonstrates how pivotal Christianity, as the different generations understood it, was in shaping the family's decisions, great and small. There will be a reception at 5.30, and the talk begins at 6. Registration is required, and there's a $10 fee unless you're an MHS member or an EBT cardholder. We'll have a link to the registration page in this week's show notes, as well as a link to purchase the book Household Gods. And now it's time for this week's main topic. On April 2nd, 1915, a small notice ran on page four of the Boston Globe. The birth of a nation, a motion picture of exceptional interest and magnitude, will be brought to the Tremont Theater Saturday afternoon, April 10th, for an indefinite engagement. The producer, D.W. Griffith, has taken for his theme the development of the nation from the time of the introduction of slavery into the colonies, treating of the abolition movement, the war of the rebellion, the death of President Lincoln, and the seceding years of Reconstruction. It is said that 18,000 persons and 3,000 horses were used in picturing the varied incidents of this remarkable spectacle. The next day, another announcement was carried in the amusement notes on page 11, appropriately enough, right next to an editorial cartoon featuring a racist caricature of a black mammy. Birth of a Nation was an explicitly white supremacist movie portraying the KKK as the heroic saviors of the white race in an American South that had been crushed under the Unionist heel during the Reconstruction period following the Civil War. It reenacted battle scenes from the war, portrayed the Confederate cause as morally superior to the Union, and showed Union soldiers indiscriminately burning and destroying civilian property in the South. In the post-war scenes, it portrayed newly emancipated African Americans as the embodiment of every stereotype and secret white fear. They were slothful, bent on revenge against their former owners, and lust-crazed for white women. Scenes of rape, forced marriage, and lynching are portrayed in loving, almost pornographic detail. Boston's African American community was outraged that such a slanderous film would come to Boston and leaders immediately began planning a response. Many white Bostonians joined their black neighbors in their offense over the movie. After all, in 1915, the Civil War was still within living memory. Many in the city had fought in the Union Army, 
and even more were family members or friends of veterans. However, few whites would join in the protests against it that followed. Most of the objections from both black and white Bostonians came because of the movie's treatment of race. A minister from Newton wrote to author Thomas Dixon, who wrote the book and play called The Klansman that Birth of a Nation was based on, and told him that he worried that the movie would stir up race hatred. Dixon responded, The only objection to it so far is a Negro society which advises its members to arm themselves to fight the whites. The society he referred to, of course, was the peaceful NAACP. That silly legal opposition they are giving will make me a millionaire if they keep it up. Other opponents of the movie appealed directly to the union pride of Boston's veterans, like this letter writer. To the editor of the Herald, Having seen the motion picture show called The Birth of a Nation and found it to be very different from what I had been led to expect, I am strongly impressed that the controlling reason why it ought to be excluded from exhibition in Massachusetts has not been brought out as it should be. I supposed its most offensive feature to be its defamation of the Negro. Much as I object to this on grounds both of justice and policy, the fundamental objection to this play lies deeper. It is covert, but most skillful and insidious defamation of the Union cause, an apotheosis of slavery and rebellion. We of the white race should be the first to rise against it, and we do ourselves no credit by leaving it to our colored fellow citizens to protest. This pictorial recrudescence of the rebellion is a gross libel upon the Union cause, upon its public leaders, upon every soldier living or dead who fought for it, and upon the whole people who supported it. Slavery and rebellion were right. The South was outraged by emancipation. The attempt to secure the Negro and his freedom was a crime for which the wholesale murder was a proper remedy. The Negro was unfit for freedom and is unfit for civil rights. The Yankees were vandals, the rebels the true chivalry, and the Ku Klux Klan the heroes of this whole drama. This is the moral of the tale, conveyed with skillful innuendo and most consummate art. It gambles on the public ignorance of our own history, and as a vast majority of people are more impressed by what they see than by what they read or hear, it is liable to win by permanently lodging a radically false conception in the public mind. The selection of Massachusetts as the field for the introduction of this spectacle to the public, impudent as that is, affords the opportunity to deal with it here as it deserves. In the South, with conditions reversed, such a show and its perpetrators would be lynched. This is not the Massachusetts way. But unless we find a way to effectively resent this libel alike upon our citizenry and our history, let us destroy our soldiers' monuments, give the battle flags at the State House to the dust heap, abolish our Memorial Day, and confess ourselves unfit to inherit the traditions of Massachusetts, in our impotence to vindicate them or the memory of the men who made them. Signed, A.E. Pillsbury. A week after the film opened, and after peaceful protests and backroom dealing to try to get the film banned had fallen through, Boston's Black community began actively trying to prevent the film from being played on April 17th. The Globe headline the next day screamed, Birth of a Nation causes near riot. Alleged plot to destroy film results in wild scenes and 11 arrests. The article explains that there were confrontations inside and outside the theater before the movie began, as about 500 black protesters disrupted the mostly white audience as they picked up their tickets. Eggs were thrown and stink bombs were set off. During a pause in the action, William Monroe Trotter explained to a reporter why the group was protesting. It is a rebel play. 
an incentive to great racial hatred here in Boston. It will make white women afraid of Negroes and will have white men all stirred up on their account. If there is any lynching here in Boston, Mayor Curley will be responsible. The Boston Globe reported on the protest and the ensuing police action in breathless terms. As a racial demonstration, probably nothing like it has been seen in Boston since before the Civil War. There was no bloodshed, to be sure, and little actual violence. But without the presence of 60 policemen in the theater and 200 outside, it is hard to tell what might have happened. The theater management asserts that there was an organized plot to fill the house with Negroes, destroy the films, and stop the play, and that only by the help of the large force of police was this prevented. This charge is denied by the Negro leaders arrested. The trouble in the lobby before the play, when a crowd of Negroes and whites were clamoring for tickets that were refused, the struggles of the police details to clear the premises and preserve order, and the later demonstration when the performance was over, gave Boston one of the most exciting free shows it has known in years. The New York Times gave a more restrained account of what had happened at the Tremont Theater. The trouble threatened ever since the photo play The Birth of a Nation began its engagement at the Tremont Theater culminated tonight when 500 Negroes headed by William Monroe Trotter, who made what was called an insulting address to President Wilson at the White House not long ago, arrived in a body and tried to buy tickets. The management declared that the house was sold out and that the people who were getting tickets at the box office had purchased them in advance. Trotter and his friends, among whom were several white men, assumed such an attitude that manager Shuffle called in the police, and a squad of 100, headed by Superintendent Crowley in person, hurried to the theater in automobiles. The lobby was cleared without the use of clubs, and the performance proceeded. However, this claim that the lobby was cleared without billy clubs is contradicted by a Globe article from May 4th, reporting on the trial of William Monroe Trotter and Reverend Aaron Puller. They are charged with inciting a riot at the Tremont Theater on April 17th in connection with the production of The Birth of a Nation. Each defendant claimed that he went to the theater without any idea that the other was there. Both denied having done anything to incite a riot. Dr. Puller said he was refused a ticket. As he was leaving the window, he heard a woman's voice saying, Oh, what a shame! That policeman just struck a woman! He started back and was met by Sergeant King, who escorted him to the sidewalk and instructed him to tell the colored people gathered there to go home. Before he could do so, witnesses claim, he was struck in the back of the neck and knocked down. Getting to his feet, he took out his card case and was about to get the name of the officer he thought assaulted him when Sergeant King said, Something we won't repeat here, according to the witness. Dr. Puller testified that the two policemen then grabbed him by the throat, a third by the collar, which was torn off, a fourth by one arm, and Sergeant King by the other arm. He claimed he was then practically dragged to the LaGrange Street station. William Monroe Trotter, the colored editor, testified that he was struck on the jaw by a man who he later learned was Patrolman Dennis Harrington in plain clothes. Trotter asked that his assailant be arrested and was told that was impossible because Harrington was a policeman. The spring of 1915 was not the first time that Boston confronted Thomas Dixon in a work based on his novel, The Klansman. And it wasn't the first time Thomas Dixon took on Boston. Dixon was born in 1864 and raised in western North Carolina, the son of a slave owner and Klansman. Coming of age under Reconstruction, he came to hate the federal government, federal troops, and African Americans. 
He would be a standout student at Wake Forest University, and as a graduate student at John Hopkins, where he became friends with future President Woodrow Wilson. After a failed early attempt to build a writing career, he earned a law degree and became an ordained Baptist minister. After his 1886 ordination, he accepted a ministry at Dudley Street Church in Roxbury. In a 1979 article in the Massachusetts Review, John Hope Franklin argued that Dixon's experiences in Boston were pivotal in inspiring him to become a defender of the South and the KKK. Dixon's Reconstruction experience was not unlike that which he had in 1887, when he heard Justin D. Fulton speak in Boston's Tremont Temple on the Southern Problem. He was so outraged at Fulton's strictures against the South, based on a visit of six months, that he interrupted the distinguished minister midway through his lecture to denounce his assertions as false, biased. It was on this occasion that Dixon decided to tell the world what he knew about the South firsthand, and thus he began seriously to study the Civil War and Reconstruction. Soon after, he moved to New York, then became a traveling lecturer. During his travels, he witnessed a stage adaptation of Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. In the biography American Racist, The Life and Films of Thomas Dixon, Anthony Slide argues that it was this dramatization that inspired Dixon to take another crack at a writing career. Dixon was obviously aware both of the novel and of its impact, but it was the play that upset him so much that he wept at its misrepresentations of Southerners. He determined that he would write a sequel to Uncle Tom's Cabin, featuring one of Mrs. Stowe's most prominent characters, Simon Legree. Along with being an ardent racist, Thomas Dixon seems to have been a terrible audience member. His response to Uncle Tom's Cabin was The Leopard's Spots, a novel that took on the Reconstruction years published in 1902. It framed federal soldiers as carpetbaggers, emancipated slaves as maniacal villains, and, surprise, surprise, the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes of the story. The follow-up to The Leopard's Spots was called The Klansman, spelled with a C. Dixon reportedly wrote it in just 30 days, and it was released in 1905. Like his debut, The Klansman was a runaway bestseller. John Hope Franklin points out how Thomas Dixon hoped to make the leap from the printed page to the glory of the stage. The great success of The Klansman as a novel caused Dixon to consider its possibilities as a drama. In a matter of months in 1905, Dixon had converted his second Reconstruction novel into a dramatic play, whose script won the praise of John Hay, the Secretary of State, and Albert Bigelow Payne, who was to become the literary executor of Mark Twain. When the play went on tour, it was acclaimed as The Greatest Play of the South, a daring, thrilling romance of the Ku Klux Klan, and it drew enormous crowds, even though some critics thought it a bit excessive in its strictures against blacks, and the way in which it aroused emotions and animosities that many hoped were abating but The Klansman remained as thrilling on the stage as it had been as a best-selling novel. After years on tour, The Klansman was scheduled to open in Boston in July of 1910. An article in The Globe on July 17th teased the opening. Reverend Thomas Dixon's race problem play The Klansman will be given its first presentation in Boston by the Lindsay Morrison Stock Company at the American Music Hall tomorrow. There has been a great deal of criticism heaped upon this piece because of the frankness with which it deals with the Negro question in the South. 
But despite this criticism, the drama is credited with combining dramatic situations with interesting dialogue. The scenes are laid in the South, and several of the prominent characters in the piece are Southern Negroes. A note adds that, instead of white actors in blackface, black actors would be portraying black roles in the production because, quote, the old style of burnt cork is not the director's idea of true realism. So even the producers of unapologetically racist drivel in 1910 knew not to do blackface. Of course, since the novel had been a bestseller and the play had been in production for almost five years, Boston knew what the Klansman was all about. African-American leaders quickly began organizing protests against the production, and at the center of the movement was none other than William Monroe Trotter. Trotter was the grandson of enslaved people on both sides of his family. On his mother's side, he was descended from a family enslaved by Thomas Jefferson at Monticello, and his great-great-aunt was Sally Hemings. His father's side of the family came from Mississippi. Both his parents were born free, and they met and fell in love while in Ohio. During the Civil War, William's father James enlisted in the 55th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment, becoming the unit's first black commissioned officer. Soon after the war, with seven-month-old William in tow, the family moved to Boston. After a brief stint in the South End, the family settled in the independent town of Hyde Park which was mostly, though not universally, white at the time. James, a staunch Democrat, was active in local and national politics. As a reward for his political activism, he enjoyed patronage jobs with the post office and later as the recorder of deeds in Washington, D.C. James pushed Monroe, as he was called, to apply himself in his education, and he wasn't disappointed. William Monroe Trotter was the valedictorian of the mostly white Hyde Park High, and he was accepted at Harvard. During his college career, he became the first African-American member of Phi Beta Kappa and eventually graduated magna cum laude in 1895 before adding a master's degree the following year. After college, he established himself first in banking, then real estate, and finally in the insurance industry. At the same time, he felt the growing pull of the nascent civil rights movement. He joined a series of civil rights organizations in the 1890s, and finally, in 1901, he took the step that propelled him to notoriety. He founded a weekly newspaper called The Guardian, taking an editorial stance of radicalism in support of equal rights for African Americans. W.E.B. Du Bois would later say, The Guardian was bitter, satirical, and personal but it was earnest, and it published facts. It attracted wide attention among colored people. It circulated among them all over the country. It was quoted and discussed. I did not wholly agree with The Guardian, and indeed only a few Negroes did, but nearly all read it and were influenced by it. Before long, he was using The Guardian as a bully pulpit from which to criticize and harangue Booker T. Washington who was probably the most widely recognized voice of the African-American community at the time. Trotter viewed him as a weak-willed moderate who was all too willing to accommodate the white man. When Washington came to Boston in July of 1903 to speak at the Zion AME Church, William Monroe Trotter organized a large protest group who took over most of the space in the church prior to Washington's speech. At every mention of Washington's name, Trotter's group hissed and stamped their feet. When Washington finally took the stage... 
the protest group shouted them down and became unruly, as the next day's Globe described. Surrounded by a struggling mass of angry people of his own race, in the confusion of fainting women and fighting men, unable to address his audience or to persuade them into a state of sanity, Booker T. Washington met his first really hostile demonstration in Boston last evening. In the end, Trotter was arrested, and he ended up serving 30 days in the Charles Street Jail on the charge of creating a public disturbance. When he got out, he didn't sit still. That fall, he founded an organization called the Boston Suffrage League. In 1905, he and W.E.B. Du Bois founded the radical but short-lived Niagara Movement, which called for immediate, full civil equality for African Americans. In 1909, he and Du Bois collaborated again. This time, their new organization was called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which is better known by the acronym NAACP. Within a few years, though, Trotter drifted away from the organization, viewing it, big surprise, as too moderate. In 1913, Trotter secured a face-to-face meeting with President Woodrow Wilson. Trotter had supported Wilson against Taft and Teddy Roosevelt in 1912, but was then disappointed when Wilson went on to segregate the federal government after taking office. The meeting went nowhere, as Wilson claimed that his policies were not meant as an insult to African Americans. In another meeting the following year, Trotter pressed Wilson hard enough that the president claimed to be offended. He kicked Trotter out and made it clear that he wouldn't be welcome at the White House again. As the controversy over the Klansman's opening in Boston grew, A newspaper in Virginia wondered whether the play would be allowed to continue in our city, then dismissively referred to the production as a company of living actors, white and colored, striding across the stage and reproducing to the life the incidents in our struggle for deliverance from the intolerable tyranny of military despotism in a period which we should all like to forget. With his growing profile as a leader of the radical wing among black politicians, it's perhaps no surprise that William Monroe Trotter was at the forefront of the protest against the Klansmen when the play came to Boston. Trotter mobilized large groups of African Americans to publicly protest at the American Music Hall. Two days after the play opened, William Monroe Trotter and Lindsay Morrison, the producer of the Klansmen, met in the Boston mayor's office on July 20, 1910. The Boston Globe reported the outcome. Mr. Morrison, after stating his regrets that he was responsible for having the Klansmen in Boston, announced that, influenced by the protests of the Boston Negroes and yielding to the request of Mayor Fitzgerald, that the play would be discontinued. He would withdraw the piece on Friday night. Mayor John Francis Fitzgerald, better known by his nickname Honey Fitz, had requested the meeting, and he made no secret of his preference for the outcome. Honey Fitz, who was JFK's grandfather, had a reputation as a defender of the downtrodden, whether they were Irish-American immigrants or his African-American constituents. Even in faraway Colorado, the Denver Statesman, a Black-owned newspaper, praised Mayor Fitzgerald. As a race, we appreciate Mayor Fitzgerald's firm stand for law and order and extend thanks to the committee headed by W. Monroe Trotter, the fearless champion of the manhood rights of our race. Let us all hold up his hands in the great fight which he is making for the race along all lines. Five years later, Boston had a new mayor and Tom Dixon had a new plan for the Klansmen. In 1912, he started shopping the book and play around to Hollywood Studios. 
The following year, he was introduced to producer D.W. Griffith. Like Dixon, Griffith was the son of a Confederate officer, and like Dixon, he harbored a lot of lingering resentment of Northerners and the federal government because of his experience of Reconstruction. He offered Dixon $10,000 for the film rights to his novel, but after production began in 1914, Griffith ran out of money as the shooting budget spiraled out of control. He could give Dixon $2,500 in cash, but promised to make up the rest by offering Dixon a 25% stake in the film's profits. Dixon was skeptical, but in the end, the film's runaway success meant that he became the all-time highest-paid author whose novel was optioned as a motion picture, netting many millions in 2019 dollars. When the movie debuted in February 1915, it was called The Klansman, but Griffith quickly changed the name to Birth of a Nation to reflect his belief that the unification of white Northerners and Southerners in opposition to their black neighbors marked the beginning of a unified America. Its release unfolded against a backdrop of increasing racial tension in the U.S. In the 50 years since the end of the Civil War, the cooperative spirit that had marked the abolition movement was fading into distant memory. President Wilson segregated the U.S. government in 1913. Lynchings were rampant in the teens. A 1919 pamphlet published by the NAACP identified 2,522 lynchings of African Americans from 1889 up to that point, and in the teens it was averaging about 50 per year. After being largely suppressed by federal troops in the 1870s, the Klan enjoyed a major resurgence in the teens and 20s, fueled in no small part by the success of Birth of a Nation. In the face of this great unraveling of the already limited progress African Americans had made in the half-century, Birth of a Nation was one insult too far. The day after the theater protest, William Monroe Trotter addressed a large crowd of mostly African American citizens gathered at Faneuil Hall, questioning why the mayor was hesitant to protect them. Where is the valiant Jim Curley of old, the friend of the people? Lovable Jim Curley, whom we colored people supported for mayor against the advice of some of our white friends. If this were an attack on the Irish race, he would find a way to stop it pretty quick. On April 19th, two days after the protest at the theater, a crowd of at least 500 African-American men, women, and children gathered at the Massachusetts State House. They marched outside, while a delegation of about 60 people, including Trotter, went inside to meet with Governor David Walsh. The chief of the state police soon joined them, and he argued that while he had statutory authority to shut down a movie that was proven unlawful, that power had never been tested, because the Boston police had always handled matters in their jurisdiction. The Boston police commissioner was then summoned and joined the conference. Governor Walsh argued that his own authority in the matter was limited. If the protests turned into riots, he could order the state militia to disperse them, but there was little more that he could do. The chief of the state police was unwilling to test his agency's sensorial powers in such a high-profile case. Commissioner O'Meara had already made it clear that the Boston police wouldn't take action unless the movie was ruled obscene. In the end, the governor suggested a potential remedy through the courts. You, of course, understand that at present, this performance is now being carried on under legally licensed authority. I am asked now on one hand to consider and hear your impressions and your views, and also the views and authority of other public officials who have given approval to this performance. One of those officials is the police commissioner of the city of Boston. A suggestion has been substantially assented to that your committee, 
with the assistance of the police commissioner of the city of Boston, will apply to the municipal court of the city of Boston for a warrant, and that in the event that the court shall find a violation of the law, the police commissioner will at once accept the decision of the court and report the matter to the mayor of Boston. So the city would sue the theater and movie producer in municipal court, which would allow the city to pull their license if any violation was found. That left the obvious question about what would happen if no violation was found. A reporter asked, Supposing the court says that the law cannot be so construed as to stop the show, will you try to get a law passed that will? I most certainly shall, replied the governor. After hearing about this compromise with the governor, large, mostly white crowds turned out at the Tremont Theater that night to see if the owners would be arrested, or the movie would be shut down, or just how the evening would proceed. As the Boston Globe put it, In the evening, several thousand curious people, among them a very few colored, gathered in front of the Tremont Theater on the Common and waited patiently for something to happen. But nothing happened. It was a fine night, and the crowd just hung there. There was a squad of policemen present to keep the sidewalk clear and the people on the sidewalk moving. The ticket lobby was crowded early, and every seat in the house was sold before 8 o'clock. A great many people had evidently purchased tickets in advance. There was no disturbance in the lobby or on the stairway, and the people departed quietly when informed there were no more seats. There were very few colored people among the ticket purchasers. Inside the theater, there were no demonstrations, and the show passed off quietly. There was no doubt that the colored people had determined to keep away from the theater last evening and wait for the law to take its course. They were advised so to do by the speakers at the Statehouse demonstration. They put all their efforts yesterday into the Statehouse protest, and colored men and women came there from all over Greater Boston. With Governor Walsh's promise, the activists who had protested the night before stayed home waiting to see if their grievances would be addressed. Their goals were simple. Birth of a nation should be forced to close, or, failing that, it should be censored. The U.S. Supreme Court had just ruled that motion pictures were a form of commerce rather than art, and thus not protected by the First Amendment. In his memoir, W.E.B. Du Bois described the awkward position this put opponents of the movie in. In combating this film, our association was placed in a miserable dilemma. We had to ask liberals to oppose freedom of art and expression, and it was senseless for them to reply, use this art in your own defense. The cost of picture making and the scarcity of appropriate artistic talent made any such immediate answer beyond question. Now, the very notion of censorship is anathema to the modern American but at the time, it was par for the course in Boston. From the 1870s to the 1940s, a powerful board of censors had the final say in what art Bostonians were allowed to see, or read, or listen to. As we described back in episode 40, the board of censors often worked hand-in-hand with the shadowy Watch and Ward Society to identify poems, books, plays, and movies that they considered to be obscene or offensive. Any such work could either be cleaned up by the creator, cutting out the offending passages to create a watered-down Boston version, or it would simply be banned in the city. Explicit references to sexuality, any allusion of homosexuality, and gratuitous violence could all get a work banned. 
There was also a more vague standard by which a work could be banned if authorities believed it would create a public disturbance. Certainly, Boston's puritanical reputation weighed on the minds of the movie's backers. A Newton minister wrote an affidavit recounting his conversation with Klansman author Thomas Dixon on the eve of the Boston opening of Birth of a Nation. I asked Mr. Dixon to what cities the show would be taken next, and he replied that all plans had been held up until they knew the result of the protests in Boston. He said he regarded Boston as the critical point for their enterprise, that it was more likely to object to such a play than any other city, and that he and his associates believed that if they could get by in Boston, they would be able to go anywhere else in the country with the show without trouble. In accordance with the governor's pronouncement that the courts would have to decide the fate of Birth of a Nation, producer D.W. Griffith and Tremont Theater owner John Shuffle were summoned before Judge Thomas Dowd in Boston Municipal Court on Tuesday, April 20th, on a charge of obscenity. Their lawyer requested a continuance of at least two days and requested that the judge watch the movie before the case continued. The judge denied this request, saying, This is a matter of emergency and exigency, a matter of much import to both sides, and I think it calls for action as soon as possible. I think there should be a hearing on the matter today. Of course, that does not mean that immediately after the hearing a summons or a warrant shall be granted. There should be a hearing, however, as soon as possible, because of the public clamor, and either the alleged grievances should be alleviated or the show should be allowed to continue without further interference. He ordered that the hearing would proceed at 2 p.m. that day, and that he would view the film after the hearing if he judged it necessary in coming to a decision. That afternoon, he heard arguments from both sides. Deciding that he did need to see the movie, he ordered a recess. That evening, he joined another sold-out crowd at the Tremont and watched Birth of a Nation. On Wednesday, April 21st, the hearing resumed. As soon as the court was convened, Judge Dowd read his decision. I don't think the question of race is involved. It is a question entirely of the decency and the morality of the play. The element of race has not been considered in reaching a decision. I'm convinced that the statute covers this play. There is one scene which is offensive and immoral. This is the scene where the renegade and degenerate Negro Gus pursues a child of 12 years with an expression upon his face which leaves no doubt of his state of mind. There is not any question of his purpose in pursuing the white girl. He is plainly actuated by the lowest passions of mankind. This would be the same were he a white man. I will give the management 24 hours to eliminate the objectionable scene wherein the degenerate Negro pursues the white girl, who throws herself from the top of a cliff. And if this is not done, a summons will issue. I have rendered my decision and will not change it. If it is not satisfactory to you, you must take it to a higher authority. Mayor Curley added his opinion. I am glad to learn that the judge who has heard the evidence of both sides in the case has confirmed my view that only the scene in question could possibly be regarded as offensive. From a modern perspective, it seems like the difference in attitude between Honey Fitz and James Michael Curley made all the difference in Boston's reaction to the Klansman and Birth of a Nation. Judge Walsh said that Black Boston would have to take their complaint to a higher authority, and so they did. That very same afternoon, Trotter, along with Lieutenant Governor Grafton Cushing and an assortment of ministers and equal rights activists, went to the State House and lobbied the House Rules Committee to adopt a new censorship law for Massachusetts that would be broad enough to apply to works that promoted racial violence, rather than just covering obscenity. 
With the weight of the Walsh administration behind it, the new bill began to make its way through committee. While the new bill was debated and amended and debated again, Boston's Black community kept the pressure up. Thousands of people met at Faneuil Hall, overflowing the building and gathering outside the windows to listen to the speakers. Thousands again gathered at Tremont Temple. The largely white Unitarian and Congregational churches passed resolutions protesting the movie, and many parishioners signed petitions against it. On May 3rd, a special permit was issued to allow a group of Black ministers to address a crowd of 2,000 protesters on Boston Common. The Globe carried a report on their speeches. Reverend D.O. Walker of Chelsea, a Negro, presided at the meeting on the Common. I am here, he said, to warn the men who are trying to trample on my race that this fight is on. It shall not stop until the birth of a nation is gone. We are not satisfied with the bill of the Committee on Judiciary. It would only make it harder for us. We're only putting up a flag of truce and awaiting legislation. I don't care if my life is lost in this fight. The birth of a nation must go. Reverend M.W. Thornton of the Charles Street Methodist Church declared that if the birth of a nation continues much longer, there will be human barbecues and burnings at the stake in Boston, and worse disgraces than those of antebellum days in the South. There are no Negroes in office, he continued. No Negro policemen in this city. We have no voice in our government. I am here to voice the protest of my people against persecution. Meanwhile, across the common in the Tremont Theater, the Globe reported on a private screening of Birth of a Nation held at the same time. Applause for the Ku Klux Klan was the only interruption of the solemn and judicial private view of the birth of a nation by the Massachusetts legislature this morning at the Tremont Theater. True to Governor Walsh's promise that if the law couldn't be construed to stop the play, he would get a new law passed, a new Massachusetts censorship law was enacted, though not until May 21st. The new law stated that the mayor of Boston shall grant a license for theatrical exhibitions, public shows, public amusements, and exhibitions of every description to which admission is obtained upon payment of money or by a ticket or voucher. A license to be exercised in a building licensed as a theater shall be for a theatrical season and shall expire on the first day of August of each year. The mayor and police commissioner of Boston and the chief justice of the municipal court of the city of Boston, by a majority vote, may revoke or suspend any such license at their pleasure. This new board of censorship took up the question of birth of a nation on June 2, 1915. While hundreds of onlookers packed the mayor's office in the corridors of City Hall, Mayor Curley, Commissioner O'Meara, and Judge Dowd retreated to a conference room. Attorneys for the two sides argued for one hour each, and then the board deliberated in private for about 40 minutes. When they emerged, the mayor read their decision. The officials designated by Chapter 348, Acts of 1915, having received a petition from certain citizens requesting that performances of The Birth of a Nation be stopped by them under the authority given to them by the statute, having witnessed the performance, heard the counsel representing the protesters and the licensee, and having given full consideration to the entire subject, have decided that the license of the theater should not be revoked or suspended. That evening, there was a small protest at Tremont Theater. Protests continued for weeks, with groups of 20 to 100 people marching in front of the cinema. Sometimes they carried signs, and sometimes they simply chanted, We protest. 
Many were arrested for participating in unlawful gatherings as the city began to crack down. No more permits were issued to black leaders for public meetings on the common. Picketing at Tremont Theater continued for weeks, but ultimately petered out as the Board of Censors refused to revisit their decision. In the end, the NAACP adopted a resolution of disappointment. Resolved, that we record our profound regret that the newly created Board of Censors for the City of Boston, in disregard of the plain intent of the legislature, have refused to revoke the license of the photo play, The Birth of a Nation. We deplore this decision as a rejection of the just claims of our colored fellow citizens to be protected against a malicious misrepresentation of their race in a play involving a perversion of our national history and a glorification of lynching. We deplore the insidious influence of this play in the manner of its presentation. Before audiences whose judgment is misled and whose passions are inflamed by a most clever combination of spectacular and musical art, with the inevitable result of increased racial and sectional antagonism at a time when the whole world is longing for peace. The city of Boston would get a chance at a rematch with Thomas Dixon, D.W. Griffith, and Birth of a Nation. Imagine the sense of outrage and deja vu when an ad ran in the Boston Globe on Friday, May 13, 1921, saying, D.W. Griffith's American Institution, Birth of a Nation, the mightiest masterpiece of all photoplay productions, returns to Boston triumphant, along with a notice saying that it would be shown at the Schubert Theater beginning the next Monday. An article in the same paper says that a crowd of about 600 black Bostonians had protested to the new mayor, Andrew J. Peters, saying that the motion picture is a malicious misrepresentation of the colored race, glorifies the most abominable of American crimes, lynching, arouses sharp racial feeling, and tends to a breach of the peace, and that it was part of a Southern campaign of propaganda of nationwide scope designed to stimulate the popularity of the Ku Klux Klan idea and maybe establish a branch of this gang of assassins in Boston. Peters responded that he would convene the city's censorship board and hold a hearing at 10 a.m. on Monday, the morning the movie Revival was set to debut. When Monday rolled around, each side made their case to the mayor in what the papers referred to as the Aldermanic Chambers. A Globe article states that Mayor Peters reprimanded William Monroe Trotter when he complained about Mayor Curley allowing the film during the earlier administration. Then when the hearing adjourned, the mayor, along with Police Commissioner Curtis and Municipal Court Judge Bolster, trooped over to the Schubert Theater for a private showing of Birth of a Nation. Together, the mayor, the judge, and the commissioner constituted the Board of Censors, and they brought the city's licensing clerk along with them. At 5 p.m., Mayor Peters announced their decision. The entertainment license of the Schubert Theater would be indefinitely suspended. By the time the decision was announced, the opening night crowd was already beginning to gather at the theater lobby, and they were disappointed. The manager of the theater, who has the absolutely perfect name, Toxin Worm told them, We were ordered to close, and we comply with the law. There's really nothing more to say. The revival would not be allowed to debut in Boston, giving Birth of a Nation opponents a victory, though it may have been six years too late. As the Ku Klux Klan enjoyed a resurgence in the teens and 20s, due in no small part to the popularity and influence of Birth of a Nation, Trotter devoted much of his time to combating their influence. In the fall of 1921, 
He was the first witness at a congressional hearing on the KKK, as reported by the Boston Globe. William Monroe Trotter of Boston, speaking for the National Equal Rights League, the first witness, declared the Klan was a private, unofficial organization which interferes with the personal liberties of people, most of whom are outside its membership. Such interference, he charged, was an attempt to prevent the proper exercise of government. The method of coercion, Trotter said, is shown by the sending of threatening letters to persons to cease doing certain things, and by use of the hooded gown. He characterized the Klan as a real menace to the sense of personal security of millions of citizens. Urging an investigation, Trotter said he believed the Klan illegal and should be suppressed. When our president is attempting to lead the world through disarmament, he said, this country cannot afford to have this notorious order in its domain, when it is based on the suppression of one religion or one race of people. On April 7, 1934, Trotter died after falling from the roof of his Dorchester home in the early hours of his 62nd birthday. People have long speculated whether the fall was accidental or deliberate, but there's no evidence either way. The Guardian was published for a time by Trotter's sister, but it had already entered a slow decline that continued until the paper folded in the 1950s. William Monroe Trotter sank into obscurity for decades after his death, until he was, in a sense, rediscovered during the 1960s civil rights movement. At that time, the William Monroe Trotter Elementary School was founded in 1969 as a public magnet school in Grove Hall, attempting to entice white suburban students to study in a mostly black neighborhood. A William Monroe Trotter Institute was founded at UMass Boston in 1984 for research into black history and culture. Trotter's legacy also lives on through the NAACP. Though by 1915, William Monroe Trotter was no longer active in the leadership of the organization he had helped found, the NAACP found itself an unlikely beneficiary of the notoriety of Birth of a Nation. A 2016 Boston Globe article examined how the protests against the film helped to raise the organization's nationwide profile. By June, Trotter and NAACP leaders had staged some 18 mass rallies, involving between 500 and 2,500 protesters at each, or many thousands of agitators in total, often getting front-page coverage in the city's seven daily newspapers. It was the kind of outpouring of black power that no one, not Trotter, Du Bois, or the NAACP leaders had ever witnessed before, certainly more evocative of the 1960s than the year 1915 in terms of the country's collective memory. In a 2011 article, Steven Weinberger argues, Until this film's appearance, all of the issues the association had confronted tended to be local or regional. Housing segregation involved only specific cities in southern and border states. Lynching also was overwhelmingly a southern phenomenon. The birth of a nation, however, was a national event. It appeared in cities and towns of all sizes above and below the Mason-Dixon line. As the film moved from major population centers to smaller ones, so too did the protests. Birth generated not only interest, but also opposition throughout the nation. The Boston branch of the NAACP even published a book later in 1915 called Fighting a Vicious Film, which detailed the organization's complaints against Birth of a Nation and the tactics it had taken in fighting the production. In it, they also report on the unexpected benefit of the protests. 
The moral enthusiasm, love for liberty, and a genuine feeling of brotherhood which swept over the country in abolition days seemed to be reawakened. Where for years stood a thin, heroic line of the old guard, growing fewer and more pathetic in their demand that the faith of the fathers be kept, that the Constitution be the palladium of the liberty of all the people and not of a chosen few, there now stand thousands, recruited from the ranks of the various race groups composing our citizenship, demanding fair play and justice for all men and the compensation far outweighs the failure to stop this one infamous play. The NAACP weren't the only ones to see a silver lining in the unsuccessful 1915 protest against Birth of a Nation. When he was about 19 years old, Booker T. Washington was briefly a teacher in a segregated West Virginia school. One of his pupils was Samuel E. Courtney, and the two maintained correspondence for the rest of Washington's life. In 1915, Courtney, who was now a successful Harvard-trained physician practicing in Boston, wrote to Washington, who was in the last year of his life, and described one of the big protest rallies against the film at Faneuil Hall and the hope it inspired. I looked over the vast crowd of Negro men and women, and the thought came to me that this is a united people, and although in the minority now, they are going to win. I imagined all the black leaders meeting together here in Old Liberty Hall, Washington, Du Bois, Trotter, and forgetting their differences, and a race of 10 million Negroes would be united. A nation would really be born. To learn more about Boston's reaction to Birth of a Nation, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 121. We'll have a plethora of Boston Globe stories relating to the 1915 protests against the movie, the 1921 protests against its revival, and the 1910 protests against its predecessor play. We'll have stories about William Monroe Trotter's background, as well as Thomas Dixon's. And we'll have some scholarly papers on protests against the movie and the rise of the KKK. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Household Gods, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Google Podcasts and Google Play Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple, please consider rating and reviewing us. It helps us show up higher in the podcast rankings where people can find us more easily. If you write us a review, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of our appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.